Well, have you ever had a lesson that you had to learn the hard way? Now, if you have, you know that the lessons you learn the hard way are some that you, you never forget. And for me, in, uh, my, between my sophomore and junior year of college, during an internship, I had a lesson that I learned the hard way that is uh, forever ingrained in me. And I learned this lesson as I was at an uh, internship at a church up in Michigan. And as part of the internship, they placed you with a host family. That they, you lived with them, they, they fed you everything because interns don't make hardly anything. So I, I'm staying with this host family and they, they had this beautiful home, nice big screen TV before that was a thing that everybody had. And so I, I felt like I got the best host family out of all the interns at the church that summer. Well, one weekend, the, the family's gone. They're, they're at a baseball tournament. So I have, I have the run of the house to myself. So I've got the big screen TV on. They have one of those waffle makers, like at the Holiday Inn, you know, where you turn it over and make the waffle. So I'm cranking out waffles and watching the big screen TV. And, and I keep hearing this, this sound as I'm watching TV, and it sounds like running water. And I think, what is, what is that sound? So I, I follow it and, and I go upstairs and there's a bathroom attached to the room that I was staying in and, and the sound of running water is, is coming from that bathroom. So I, I lift the top of the tank off and I look in and, and in a toilet there's a water control valve that as the water level rises, it, it shuts off the water. So the water level is, is, is just running and running and running because the water control valve got stuck. So I think no big deal, I'll just reach in and, and just tap it, let it loose and it'll, it'll be no problem. What I've forgotten is that waffles give you lots of strength, right? So I'd eaten all these waffles, and I, I go to tap it up. I don't know what I did. I snapped the water control valve off in my hand, right? So now I look at this thing, and, and it was already awkward because the first day I was with the host family, I went to put the blinds up in my room, and I snapped them in half, right? So they already think I'm this, like, gangly, accident-prone person. So in my mind, I think, this is going to be really awkward. How do I tell them I broke their toilet? And so I think... Aaron, you're college educated. You can fix this, right? No, 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 I, I should have never gone there. But in my mind, I think, you've got this. You have got this. And the hard lesson is that almost nothing good comes after the phrase, you've got this, right? It, it's overconfidence. So I drive to the hardware store. I buy a new water control valve, and I go home to put it in. I don't even read the instructions, because I'm like, this looks simple. Throw the instructions aside. I've got this. I'm good to go. So I start unscrewing the old water control valve, and I pull it out. And had I read the instructions, step one would have said, drain the tank. I did not read the instructions, so I did not drain the tank. So I now have toilet water all over their beautiful bathroom, which means I have to grab some of their good, like, plush towels, and I'm wiping up toilet water. I finally get the new water control valve in and sort of functioning, not really. And I, I take the old piece of plumbing, I've got a bucket full of water, and at this point I'm soaked, right? Drenched in water. And I think, okay, here's my plan. I'm gonna run out, throw out the water, throw away the old piece of plumbing, and I'm good to go. So I'm walking out through the garage that's attached to the house, and I hear literally the worst sound that I could ever have heard at that moment, and it's the garage door going up, right? The family's home. This is, this is what we call bad timing. So there I am, soaking wet. I have a piece of their plumbing in my hand and a bucket full of water, right? I wish I, wish I knew what was going through their mind at that moment. So the door goes up. I have no option but to smile. Like, well, well how'd the tournament go, right? You, you don't save that moment. It's a bad moment, right? And so the host father of the, of the family, he rolls down his window and goes, uh, did you decide to do a little plumbing while we were gone? 
And they said, yeah, but not very well because it still doesn't quite work. So uh, they, were, they were very gracious and forgiving about it. But that whole situation, I made a greater mess than it ever needed to be, right? If I would have just stopped, called the family, consulted someone, even read the instructions, I, I would have saved myself a whole bunch of awkwardness and, and a whole lot of trouble. But the problem was is that I felt pretty confident. Like, I can do this. I've got this. I don't need anyone. I don't need to read any instructions. I can do this independently on my own. And I think sometimes there's a similar dynamic that takes place spiritually where God has given us his word, his instruction for how we should live. God provides wisdom and guidance and direction. And sometimes our temptation is to say, God, I've got this. I'm good. I'm good. I, I can make my own choices. I, I can determine my own course of action. And, and we attempt to live independently of God's voice, purpose, direction, instruction in our life. And, and there's a particular scene in the history of the nation of Israel where they are in a place where, as, as a nation, they have said, God, we've got this. We, we, don't, we don't really need you. But the hard lesson I've learned is that whenever we say, God, I've got this, is that it always leads to a bigger, more broken place than we can imagine. And so the nation of Israel, in Isaiah chapter 8, they find themselves in this place where they've tried to go it on their own strength. And God said, okay, you want to try it? You can try it. And the army of the Assyrians has invaded Israel, and they're living under Assyrian oppression. And, and they're in this dark place as a people because they've told God, we've got this, we don't need your instruction, we're good. And so Isaiah chapter 8 paints a rather bleak picture of this scenario. Let me read this for you. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they'll become enraged, and looking upwards will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. What a bleak picture. Right? As you read that passage of Scripture, there, there's not really anything encouraging there. But what we find is that the nation of Israel is wrestling with their question of how do we find peace in the midst of this broken situation that we've gotten ourselves into? And, and I think the context that they're describing, one in which uh, people are lost, they're roaming about the land, one in which they're, they're given way to despair and to distress, I think their context pretty accurately describes our culture in some ways. I think we live in a broken and chaotic world where people are asking the question, how do I find peace? And this is the same question that the people of Israel are asking. Okay, God, the, the nation of Assyria has invaded. We're living under their oppression. This is a dark time in their history, and they're asking this question, how do we find peace? And what we see for the people of Israel is that Isaiah tells us their, their attempt to find peace began with the things of this world and the things of their culture. Did, did you notice what he says? Isaiah says, why do you consult mediums and spiritists? Those are sort of the, the, the cultural wise people of that day. And, and they're approaching these, these mediums and spiritists saying, hey, can you help us how, understand how to get through this time? How do we find peace again? How do we get back to a place of, of, of joy and right living? And, and then I think that same question for us is one that, that, that hangs heavy for us. How do we find peace in the midst of a broken and chaotic world? How do we find peace in the midst of a broken 
and chaotic world. And, and I think like the people of Israel, we attempt to do something similar in that we look to the things of this world, we look to the, the things of our culture to attempt to find peace. Now, probably not too many of us are consulting mediums and spiritists, but I think some of us, we look to the wise voices according to our culture. Uh, we look to uh, our external circumstances and think, if I can just get things under control, I'll find peace. If I can just get that right job where I make a certain amount of money and have financial security, I'll be able to experience peace. Or we think, if I can just resolve this conflict with this family member, if I can just resolve this issue at work, I'll be able to have a deep sense of peace. And so what we try to do is we try to control our external circumstances. And for a moment, we might experience a, a little bit of calm. We might experience a lull in the storm. But sooner or later, those things come and go. And that question is there again. How do we experience peace in the midst of the broken and chaotic world that we live in? And so I think if we're going to attempt to address that question, one of the first things that we have to do is we have to begin to define what is peace. Because I think for a lot of us, we define peace as, as calm external circumstances. We would say, okay, that, that's peace. The things in my life are going well. I don't have any conflict. I don't have any drama at the moment. That's peace. But I think conflict or, or, or peace is something much different, much deeper than simply a lack of calm conflict or calm external circumstances. So what is peace? There's a, a fable told of a, a wealthy man who was on a journey to find a picture, a painting, or a photograph that depicted peace. And he had been to art gallery after art gallery and gone to museums, and he, he didn't find a picture that he felt really depicted peace well. And so he decided as a wealthy man that, that he would host uh, a contest and have artists from around the world paint pictures that depicted peace. And so he, he gets the word out, and, and slowly these works of art start coming in, and, and he rents out a, an art gallery, and he puts up all these works of art and invites people to come in and, and look at these pictures that are supposed to be a, a representation of what peace is. And so as, as they go through this art gallery, they begin to see pictures like this one, right? The soft lighting, still water, right? There's something about that picture. It just it seems serene, and if pictures like this, right? It's a calm field of wildflowers. There's no wind. That's how we know it's not a South Dakota picture. Perfectly calm. The soft lighting. Or no, maybe it's a picture like this, the, the smooth as glass water, right? Something about this seems like a picture that something about it's calming. It's, it, it seems peaceful. And in the person who had, had started this, this contest to find a picture that depicts peace, he, he goes from one picture to the next, and he's, he's looking at him and taking him in, and, and finally he works his way to this picture. And it's a picture of, of a waterfall that's cascading over cliffs, and there's a, a thunderstorm taking place in the, in the background. And, and, and the other people who, who are in this uh, gallery, they look at this and they go, I, I don't think this guy got the memo. I mean, he didn't know this was supposed to be a picture depicting peace, right? And this man who had started this contest, he, he looks at this picture for a while, and he's, he's really taking it in, and finally he steps back and he goes, this is the one. This is the picture that I'm going to choose as the winner for a picture that depicts peace. And everyone else who's in the gallery, they look at him and they go, are, are you kidding me? What, a, what about this is, is a representation of peace? 
And he goes, well, if, if you look in the center of the picture, there's, there's a bird who's built a nest in the crag of, of one of the rocks. And he said, this depicts peace, not because the circumstances are peaceful, but he says, in the midst of the chaos, of the tumultuous waterfall, of, of the lightning and thunder in the sky, he says, in the midst of all of that mess, this bird has found a place of rest and has found a place of, uh, uh, of safety and well-being. And he said, this depicts peace because peace isn't just calm circumstances. Peace is about finding a, a sense of wholeness and well-being in the midst of the chaos. So as we begin to define peace, I think this is important because peace is not just calm circumstances. I think biblically defined peace is a life of righteousness, wholeness, and well-being. It's about life as we were meant to live. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But he says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. To know and to understand true peace is about understanding the fullness of life that Jesus has called us to in himself. And so as we ask that question, how do we begin to, to find peace in a broken and chaotic world? The first thing I want to tell us, and this seems backwards, is not to pursue peace. Because I think what happens is we, we want to say, okay, I want to find peace as sort of this abstract concept. And okay, how do I find peace in my life? I don't think we'll ever experience peace that way. Instead, I think if we want to find peace in a broken and chaotic world, what I think we need to do is to pursue Jesus, and in relationship with him, Jesus brings peace. And so peace is not just calm circumstances. It's about a life lived in relationship with Jesus in which we walk righteously. And as a result, we experience a sense of wholeness and well-being, life as we were meant to live. In Isaiah chapter 26, the prophet says this. He says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. He says, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Now, the word there that the prophet uses for peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And the Hebrew word shalom, translated here as peace, is translated in other places as completeness or wholeness or a holistic sense of well-being. This is life rightly ordered and rightly lived. But we often think of peace as the absence of conflict or we think of peace as the absence of chaos or we think of peace as, as, as calm circumstances. But when the writer of, of, of Isaiah uses this word peace and uses that Hebrew word shalom, he's not saying this is just the absence of conflict. He's saying, no, this is the presence of wholeness and well-being as you live in a trusting relationship with the God of all creation. So peace is not just calm circumstances. It's about a life rightly aligned with Jesus. So how do we begin to find to experience peace? I think peace, peace comes from a life rightly aligned with God. I think the operative term there in Isaiah 26, he says, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. 
And then the writer of Isaiah uses repetition. Verse four, he says, trust in the Lord, for the Lord is the rock eternal. God is unchanging. Trust in him, align your life with him. Live according to the instruction of what God has called you to live. And as you trust your life to God, you will begin to experience a deep sense of peace that even when your external circumstances are chaotic and crazy, underneath all that, you know that there's a God that's present with you that you can trust in the midst of the chaos. Because if we try to find peace by controlling all of our external circumstances and resolving all of our conflict, that won't happen until Jesus comes, until he returns. But I think the peace that God calls us to is about living in a right relationship with him and experience a deep sense of of wholeness and well-being as we live the way that Jesus has called us to live. In the New Testament, Paul, in his letter to the church at Galatia, In chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And again here, the idea is that peace isn't something that we find. Peace only has its origin in relationship with Jesus. As Christians, we believe that that when we enter a relationship with God, that his Spirit comes and, and abides in us. And what we see in Paul's letter to the church at Galatia is that the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit bears in your life, is peace. Love, joy, peace. That's the fruit of the Spirit. We cannot find and we cannot know peace apart from living relationally connected to God. So what, what does this look like? I want to begin to flesh this out a little bit more concretely. And, and I want you to use this story in the example of Mary as, as a kind of a case study of what this looks like to experience peace in the midst of chaotic circumstances. So Luke chapter one, we encounter the story of Mary in verse 26. Let me read this for you. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked. Uh, I'm, I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. I, this is one of those passages that we, we often read at Christmas time. Probably somewhat familiar if you have uh, been in church any, any sort of time. And, and the thing that I think that can be dangerous about getting so familiar with a passage of Scripture is that we, we fail to see what's, what's really at stake here. Because this angel comes to Mary, and the word that he brings is going to turn Mary's life upside down. Mary, we know from this passage of Scripture, she's betrothed to be married to Joseph. 
Now, in, in that culture, betrothal is, is something more than engagement. It doesn't just mean, oh, they're engaged with a promise to be married. No, to be betrothed or to be pledged to be married in the Jewish culture, there's already a sort of legal transaction that's taken place between the families. And so according to the families, according to culture, they are considered married. The consummation of that marriage will happen after the formal wedding ceremony that's yet to come. The typical age of betrothal in Jewish society was somewhere between the ages of 13 and 15. So Mary is really young. So here's this young girl who's planning her whole life out. She's probably excited about the wedding that's coming. She's excited about getting to do life alongside Joseph, who's going to be her husband. And she's planning for the future. And this angel comes to her and he says, greetings, you who are highly favored. And I love that it says Mary is troubled by that. What does this mean? And the angel says, Mary, you're going to give birth to a child. And she asked this question. I, I don't think it's a question of doubt. I think it's a question of, this doesn't make biological sense. She goes, how is that even possible? I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. Biologically, that doesn't work. And the angel tells her, Mary, what's going to happen is going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. But how is Mary supposed to explain that as a virgin that she is pregnant with a child? What are the people around her going to think? I mean, the, the Jewish culture at this time is, is very much an honor-shame culture. If, if she's suspected of being an adulteress, she brings great shame to her family and great shame to herself. Her, her good name could be dragged through the mud as people think, oh, she's an adulterous woman. We know elsewhere in Scripture, John chapter 8, that a woman caught in adultery, the teachers of the law wanted to stone her. Her very life could be at risk. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, we find out that when the angel appears to Joseph and says, hey, Mary's going to have a child, it says that Joseph has in mind to divorce her quietly. Everything that Mary knows, everything that she's planning for is at stake. This could all be taken from her as a young girl in the age of 13 to 15, somewhere in there. Her life is literally being flipped upside down. And what I think is, what, what blows my mind is at the end of this, Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. Let your word be fulfilled. Her world is in a mess of trouble. This is a chaotic moment in her life. Her circumstances are no longer in her control. And Mary comes to this place and she goes, I'm at peace with this. God, let your word unfold as you have said. And so I, I looked at Mary's life and I go, how in the world does she experience peace in the midst of circumstances like that? Everything is on the line. And I think in a lot of ways, it goes back to what we talked about in Isaiah 26. Mary was someone who trusted her God. And, and I think there's some specific ways that Mary demonstrated trust here. One of the first ways is uh, verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And I think one of the first things that Mary trusted is that Mary trusted God's presence. Her circumstances were uncertain. Her circumstances are, are now chaotic. How does she explain a virgin birth to people who probably aren't going to understand? But Mary trusts that God is present with her, and God's presence can be, bring peace even in the midst of chaotic things. One of my earliest memories as a child is uh, one night uh, in my hometown, a, a rather violent thunderstorm blew through. And I remember as a, as, as a little kid, maybe four or five, I don't know, uh, just sitting in my bed shaking. I was so terrified of this storm. I didn't even want to get out of bed. I was so scared. 
And finally, I worked up the courage, and, and I jumped out of my bed, and I, I ran into my parents' room, and I, I woke up my dad. And I just remember my dad leaning down and, and picking me up and holding me, and he's like, hey, hey, what's wrong, what's wrong? You know, he's half asleep as I wake him up. And I said, Dad, you know, the storm, and I, what's going to happen? It's scary, it's loud. And, and I just remember my dad saying, hey, 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 you're okay, you're okay. And we sat there, and he says, hey, do you, do you know this neat little trick about thunderstorms? And I said, no, no, no. And he says, well, we watch for the lightning, and after the lightning, we, we count this many counts, and you hear the thunder, and you can tell how far away a thunderstorm is. And I remember my dad and I sitting there for 20, 25 minutes, watching for the lightning and counting the thunderstorm. And, and over time, as I sat there, I began to relax. And that fear that was there from the thunderstorm began to dissipate. And it wasn't that the circumstances changed. The, the storm was still there, and the thunder and lightning, and, and the wind was still beating against the house. The thing that changed was that now I was in the presence of my father. And I didn't trust my circumstances, but I trusted my dad. And if he felt safe, I could trust that. Listen, I think the same thing is, is spiritually true with God, our Father. There are circumstances that are going to feel out of control, that are going to feel chaotic, but in the midst of those things, we can trust that if God is present, we're going to be okay. Even if it doesn't feel or doesn't seem okay, God's presence changes everything in those moments. So that in the midst of the chaos, we can be rooted in a place of peace because we trust God's presence. I think the other thing that I see Mary trusting is she trusts God's power and provision. Mary asks this question, okay, what you're telling me is impossible. God, how, how can this come true? And the angel tells her, what's gonna happen will happen in the power of the Holy Spirit. That God's power and his provision is, is gonna come through in ways that you can't even imagine. And when we encounter chaotic circumstances that we don't understand, that we don't know how to navigate through, it's an opportunity to see God's power and provision made manifest in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And the question that's before us is, out of Isaiah chapter 26, can, can we be steadfast in our trust of God and know that he's present and know that his power and provision will be made known there? I think the other thing that I see Mary trusting is that Mary trusts God's promise. Notice what the angel says in verse 37. He says, for no word from God will ever fail. He says, your relative Elizabeth, she's gonna have a child. He says, no word from God ever fails. And so Mary can know and believe that what the angel is saying is true and it will come to pass because the words that God speaks, they are unfailing. And so as we think about trusting God with our life, as we think about living according to his plan and purpose, living in relational connection with him, surrendering our life over to him, trusting him with that, we can know and believe that what God has spoken in here will not fail, that his promises are good and true. And the question is, if we want to encounter his peace, can we trust God with our life? Can we yield our life to him? And let's, uh, let's talk real talk for a moment because I think sometimes my, my, my concern as a pastor is that somehow I would give the impression that I don't have to wrestle with this, that somehow I get this or I understand this. And can I tell you how untrue that is? E even this week, sometimes when I, when I have to preach, I get nervous because like this week, God asked me to preach on peace, and I thought, I think you're going to make me uh, learn this in a new way this week, and that terrifies me. And so I'm, I'm trying to put this message together, and there, sometimes God blesses you in a message. It just comes together, and you go, yes, this is good. This was not that week, right? I, felt like, I literally felt like I was beating my head against the wall, and the message was not coming together, and I was really, really frustrated, because I, I take this moment incredibly seriously. I think this is a sacred moment. And I thought, God, I don't want to get up there and not have anything to say. And 
You know, are you going to leave me up there like a fool? And, and it wasn't coming. And I feel the pressure. I've got to get the note guide done so it can be in the bulletin and be on the screens, and, but I still don't have anything. And Thursday morning, I took a whole chunk of the message and threw it out and rewrote it. And, and, and I left the church that, that evening, Thursday evening, and I said, God, I'm really frustrated. This is not coming together. I don't feel like it makes any sense. I was like, I don't even know if I want to do this. And it was one of those moments where I felt the Spirit nudging me. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was, I felt God speaking, and he said, do you trust what you're going to talk about? And I thought, maybe, I think so. So I'm talking about it. And he said, no, 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 do you really trust what you're going to talk about, or do you feel like you've got this? And I realized that there was still an element of me saying, God, I've got this, I've done all the research, i put it together, and it still was garbage. And it was one of those moments where God said, I want you to lay this at my feet. And I want you to trust. Can you trust that I'm present in this with you? That when I call you to, to teach, you don't do it alone, that I am present with you. Can you trust my power and provision in the midst of this? Can you trust that my word and my promises are true and unfailing? And for me, honestly, it was a moment right there in the parking lot, right out here of wrestling with this and saying, you know what? I don't know if I believe this like I thought I believed it. Because God, I'm bringing the the poverty of my words and the poverty of my ability, and I'm laying it at your feet, and I know it's not enough, but I'm trusting that you're present. I'm trusting your provision, and I'm trusting that your word is unfailing, and if, if this is spoken, that you'll do something with it. And I'll, I'll tell you, my, my, my demeanor did change from a sense of frustration to a sense of saying, okay, I, I still feel the stress of that moment, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust. I'm gonna lay it at your feet. I'm gonna surrender the outcome and trust you. Because God, I, I don't have this. And I need your presence. I need your provision. And I need your promise to be true. So if this is terrible, you can blame God. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but even in my own life this week, I'm wrestling with and saying, what does this mean to live in peace? To walk in peace, trusting his presence, his power, and his provision. And one of the things is, as I continued to read the scripture and, and look at Isaiah chapter 9, as I realized that, that in the midst of our chaotic moments, one of the things that we're tempted to say is that, okay, God, you're not doing anything. I'm in this moment where my circumstances are out of control and it feels chaotic. And one of the things over and over again that I see is that when things feel chaotic, I believe that God is up to something. I don't believe that God has abandoned us there. So if we go back to Isaiah chapter 8, Right? It's this, this grim picture where, where we're left at the end of chapter 8. They will be thrust into utter darkness and gloom. Like that, That's depressing. But then in chapter 9, everything changes. Chapter 9 begins with this word, nevertheless. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In other words, God's saying, listen, you're in this place of gloom, but something's happening. God is up to something. There's a conspiracy of peace in the midst of these chaotic circumstances. Verse 2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Jumping down to verse 4, he says, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he is speaking that word into a place of deep darkness and chaos in the life of the nation of Israel as they live under Assyrian impression. But he says, listen, God is up to something, and there is a reign of peace that is coming as God sends his son, a light will dawn, and you will know hope again. Because God has not abandoned his people. And in the midst of that place of darkness, they will see the power and the provision, and they will know the unfailing promises of God to be true. 
So how do we begin to respond to this? How do we begin to take a step forward? There's a couple things that I see in the example of Mary. One of the first ways I think we respond is this. We have to recognize our identity as servants of God. I think what Mary says in verse 38 of chapter 1 is incredibly profound. That God says, listen, I'm going to turn your life upside down. In verse 38, Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. Let your word to me be fulfilled. Now, the interesting thing about a servant, and and the Greek word here is doulos. Servant is maybe a soft translation. Some have suggested we would be better off to say that Mary is saying, I'm God's slave. But the idea here is, Mary says, I'm your servant. A servant doesn't carry out their own agenda. A servant only serves the agenda and the mission and the purpose of the master. So when Mary says, oh, you're going to flip my life upside down, she says, I am the Lord's servant. Let your word be fulfilled. This is an act of deep, deep surrender. As Mary says, I'm your servant. I want my life to be about fulfilling your agenda. Because listen, we cannot know peace apart from being relationally connected to Jesus Christ, which means an act of surrender in which we come before him and say, God, my life is yours. Would you direct my steps? I lay down my plan, my purpose for my life, and I want to take up your agenda for my life. I think the second way we respond then is we have to recognize what it is to live as a sent people. I think sometimes when we talk about this idea of peace, we do it in an individualistic way. So when we try to to find peace through controlling our circumstances, we think, okay, if I can uh, marry the right person, if I can have the perfect kids, and if I can resolve conflict, and I can get the right paying job and have financial security, I'll know peace. What we're tempted to do is sort of to contract into our own little individualistic world, and, and I want to maintain my peace, and I don't have time for your drama, and I don't have time for your brokenness. I'm trying to maintain my own peace. The problem is is that God's agenda, God's mission and purpose does exactly the opposite. It turns our life outward on itself. And so just as the light of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9 dawns, the light, hope enters a dark place. In in the Gospels, Jesus begins to say these things. Gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world, speaking to the believers. In John chapter 20, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so we see that just as Jesus entered hopeless places and he bore witness to the hope of redemption and the hope of reconciliation and he brought a message of peace and holistic living in relationship with him, Jesus has sent us out to bear witness to the same message. So if you want to know and experience peace, don't withdraw into your own individualistic existence. If you want to know true peace, lay down your life as a servant of God and invest yourself in the call and the purpose and the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means making room and space for the brokenness and the woundedness of others. It means a life of love that that begins to reach out beyond itself as the Spirit enables us through bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience. It means this place of surrender of saying, God, I do not have this. And I'm laying down my life before you. So, My prayer for us is that we would be agents of God's peace wherever God has us planted. Where does God have you planted right now? Where has God given you a sphere of influence? How can you be an agent of God's peace in your family? And some of you are saying, well, (laughs) pastor, you don't know my family. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of drama. It's not really a place of peace or rest. Exactly. How can you bear witness to the peace of God in that place? How can you be a calming presence by the grace of God that bears witness to another way of doing life? 
How can you bear witness to the relationship of Jesus Christ and how it's radically transformed the way that you approach life? How can you be an agent of God's peace in the place where you work? And maybe you're saying, Pastor, you don't know where I work. It's cutthroat. It's all about politics. People want to climb the corporate ladder. Nobody cares about anyone else. So how can you be an agent of God's peace in that place? How can you bear witness to the fruit of the Spirit that is being born in your life? To really experience peace, do not contract and say, I'm going I'm to minimize the, the, the drama of other people around me. You want to know peace, invest your life in the call, mission, and purpose of the gospel. Lay it down as God's servant. And may we say, as Mary said, let your word be fulfilled. As we celebrate the season of Advent, as we celebrate the incarnation, it is nothing less than that, that God sent his son to us in the midst of our darkest, most broken places. And the word of Jesus to us is, as the Father has sent me, John 20, so I am sending you. So may we live with the recognition of our identity as servants of God. And may we live radically as a sent people in relationship with God and sent out for the mission of the gospel. And there in that intersection of relationship and mission, may we find and experience peace that only God brings, that only his spirit can bear. We need his presence. We need his power and provision. We need to know and to trust that his promises are good and true. And we need to confess with Mary, I do not have this. We need you. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I, I thank you for the example of, of your servant, Mary. God, you, you turned her life upside down, and, and yet still she relentlessly trusted you, and God, I, I find myself challenged by that, because so often when I think of peace, I think of how can I maintain my own little safe world, but God, that's not what you call us to. God, I pray as we ask that question, how do we know peace? God, I pray that we would be reminded that, that we need you. We need to recognize your presence and we need your power and provision because we cannot do this on our own. So God, in the places where we're tempted to live independently, in the places where we're tempted to say, I've got this, God, I pray that we would confess, actually, we don't have it. Life is not in our control and we need your grace and we need your spirit. And Father, may we see the fruit of your spirit being born in our life, that we would be a people who demonstrate your peace. And may we be an agent of that peace in the places where you have us planted. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.